All right, everyone, welcome to the Cardano Effect podcast, episode four. The purpose of this podcast is to take the higher developer information and projects that are occurring within the Cardano sphere and break them down into bite-sized consumable pieces of information for everyday use. I'm your host, Philippe, and let's get this podcast started. So this podcast is going to be a little bit different than most. It's actually going to be a special AMA. And who are we going to be asking? None other than Charles Hoskinson himself. He is the CEO of IOHK, Input Output Hong Kong, and the founder of Cardano. For those who are not familiar with Charles, he also was the co-founder of Ethereum back in the day. He's a legend in the space, and we really thank him for appearing today and giving us the opportunity to speak to him today. So moving on to Reddit. Thank you to all the questions that have been submitted. Rick did a subreddit thread a couple of days ago regarding this AMA. We have compiled the questions and are going to be trying to get to as many questions as possible today. I can't guarantee that we're going to get to all the questions. Some questions have been omitted because of the duplicity nature, the duplicity of this question or you know, they, they're repeating previous questions, so please don't be offended. And also, we're not going to be answering any questions regarding financial advice. None of that financial advice is given on this podcast. So the questions that are saying, oh, I have X amount of dollars and should I invest now or should I invest later? That's not on us. That's on you. You need to find a financial advisor. You are your best financial advisor. If you don't think so, find a financial advisor who's qualified to do so. We can touch on things like the one-year bear market, which has been hurting everyone. But as far as where you should put your money, that really is on you at the end of the day. So today, it's going to be Sebastian and myself. Rick could not join us today. So the the nature or the format of this this podcast or this AMA, Sebastian will start with the first question. I'll go with another question, and we'll go vice versa, vice versa. And um, if we if we get through all the questions, we can go to the live chat and see if there are any additional questions. But when Charles, um, we're going Charles, when you feel the need to drop off or you had enough, we can we can end it there. So without further ado, before Sebastian gets the first question, Charles, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, how was your Thanksgiving and um, where in the world are you right now? Uh, right now I'm in Bangkok, Thailand, so it's uh, quite late here. Uh, I uh, came in for Beyond Blocks and I flew in from Colorado. That's a long flight. So you fly Colorado, Tokyo, and that takes about 12 hours. And then you fly from Tokyo to Thailand and that's seven and a half hours. So it was 19 and a half hours to get here to Thailand from Colorado. And uh, I fly out tomorrow morning. Uh, so in the next four day, w within this four day block, it's over 38 hours of travel. Uh, I spent Thanksgiving in uh, Mexico for Viva La Crypto. That was kind of an interesting experience, and uh, it's been a it's been a long 10 days. Cool. All right, let's so let's get into the questions then. So the first question is something I think a lot of people who have been paying attention are curious. Uh, what's up with Wyoming? So IOHK is moving to Wyoming. Does that mean the name of the company is changing to IOW? Uh, what are the details behind that? If you can uh, give us any information. We're going to leave the name IOHK. It's it's a good brand and it's a good name. Logo's the same. Uh, the website's going to stay the same. So materially, nothing physical will change about the company. Just the legal nexus of the company. Uh, there was a series of regulatory and tax changes as a result of the Trump tax cuts. And as a consequence, um, if you're operating a CFC abroad, uh, then uh, ordinarily pre-Trump tax cut, you could defer revenue or you know, until you take the money home as a dividend. Um, Post-tax cut, they just make you take 
assume you take 17.5% of it home. Uh, so the tax delta between operating abroad and operating domestically was so small that to us, it made more sense to onshore uh, meaningful components of our business. Uh, furthermore, we're growing considerably. We've gone from two people to 160 people, and we operate in some way in 16 countries. So the complexity of the business has gone up, and we're getting to the point where we'd like to start giving stock options to people and uh, other incentive packages. And so given that the dynamics of the business have changed and the regulatory environment has changed and the tax environment has changed, uh, at this stage in our evolution as a company, it, it makes sense for us to onshore and pull into the U.S. Uh, so then we had to kind of make a decision of which state to incorporate in. The canonical state is usually Delaware, uh, but you know the reality is tax rates in Delaware and Wyoming are exactly the same for corporate taxes. So you know, given that Wyoming is blockchain friendly and I can walk into the governor's office pretty easily and uh, say hi and uh, They've made an active bid to welcome blockchain companies. We felt it would be good to reward the legislatures with uh, IOHK coming home. And actually, I think we're going to be the largest blockchain company in the state once we finish the movement. So it'll take some time, uh, and it's uh, certainly a lot of effort and a lot of paperwork to file and documents to handle. And uh, But overall, I think it's going to be good for the company and uh, help us get to the next stage in our evolution. That's awesome. Definitely something to look forward to. The next question comes from Rahum from Space, and he asks, can cryptocurrency feasibly outcompete existing mobile payment technologies in Asia and Africa? Um, yes and no. So, uh, you know, the problem is that we already got the great user experience. The issue is that the user experience is centralized and not private. Uh, and this is a really interesting historical question about the evolution of technology. So historically, consumers have erred on the side of accessibility uh, and less on principles. So they've cared less about their, their personal autonomy or privacy or control. And in some cases, they even do things in ways that end up hurting them in the long term. There's no greater example of that than the lack of adoption of PGP. I mean, on paper, if I was to go to you guys and say, how about this? How about we have a password-free internet and you never ever have to create a user account again for any service you want to use? And everything's one-click install. And uh, for free, you get encrypted email, encrypted channels, and we probably get rid of the SSL certificate at the same time. You'd say, wow, that's amazing. What do I have to do? So, oh, just uh, you know, adopt PGP and let's, let's build infrastructure around that. But uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't take off because uh, it didn't have the user experience and the user interface and uh, it just it was a little bit before its time. So despite being a phenomenal idea, and, and it could have given us ultimately a significantly better system where you have a lot more personal control and a lot more privacy, and uh, also it's significantly harder to compromise our security, uh, we ended up basically with a Frankenstein monster of a system that's much less secure and much harder to orchestrate and manage. So with respect to payment systems as an analogy, there certainly are a lot of them. You, know, you can pay through WeChat and you can send money through a lot of these messaging services, and we have PayPal uh, and, and conventional credit cards and things like that. And these systems have been refined to the point where they're quite convenient for most consumers. So if you lived in the, you know, if you live in the banked world and you're happy with those systems and you're okay with their trade-offs, uh, I don't imagine that cryptocurrencies are probably going to move the needle too much, especially given that they're highly volatile at the moment. Now, that said, if you live in a remittance culture like Indonesia or the Philippines or countries in Africa, 
uh, that's a completely different ball game because you're probably unbanked or you have access to limited banking services. The average remittance rates are eight to 15% access to credit. If you can get it on the microfinance sides are about 35% interest, to 85% interest. These are estimates from the world bank. So given that they don't have good payment infrastructure, given that 3 billion people are currently unbanked and uh, given that when they can get access to services, these are siloed, fragmented, uh, and exceedingly expensive and that the sovereign currencies that they deal with tend to be very volatile in some cases uh, double digit percentages per month uh, depending on the country then uh, it does make a lot of sense to look at alternative systems and that's where i think crypto can definitely compete and actually have a a good impact but you know i, I don't tend to look at these things in terms of currency replacements or can we build a better payment system? I, I mean, it'd be great if we can do that or not. What I tend to look at are the higher order things like structured financial products, uh, creating liquidity for the SME space, uh, things like uh, being able to tokenize natural resources, and also just just concept of being able to bring people into digital ecosystems where they, they have they own their own identity. They, they own their, their, their self-sovereign. And so once you have that, then you can build commerce around it. I think that's a much more meaningful conversation because, I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're using a legacy payment rail or a cryptocurrency rail, what's really important is you're in control of that transaction. You're in control of your own money. You're in, you're in control of your own identity and you, you have the levers of your privacy. Uh, and, and that's where I think Uniquely, the cryptocurrency space has a big part of that story. You can't really be shut out of these things, whereas in the legacy systems, you can be. Uh, and we've already seen that occur in many cases. So it's, it's definitely a mixed bag. And when you build cryptocurrencies or you work on these systems, you're always thinking very carefully about, well, where, where am I chasing windmills and uh, where, where can I actually make a meaningful impact? And that's why we have a pan-African strategy with Cardano. And that's why we focus on things like how do we get a million and a half coffee farmers identified and things like how do we tokenize natural resources in Mongolia and these types of things? Because that, at the end of the day, I think is going to be what drives adoption for these platforms, not are people buying cookies with Bitcoin you know, online or something like that, or, or they're buying their coffee with ADA. You know, that's, we've been down that road. I, I've been in the space long enough. I saw it with BitPay. That was the dream. And they said, at one point, we'll reach this epic thing and we'll have this whole crypto economy. And it never really materialized because you know, consumers like value stability and their experiences, especially in the Western world, are superior to what we can offer with crypto. So something that's also partially related to that is how this is a question from Crypto Trader 49 is how do we kind of grow our ecosystem to the point where we are no longer pegged to the price of Bitcoin? And do you think that's even possible? That's a great question. And that's the canonical question of art space, right? When I was in the Ethereum side of the world, they were asking that the Ripple people ask themselves that every day. Um, it's so incredibly frustrating that uh, Bitcoin has absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing with Cardano and very little to do with what Vitalik is doing with Ethereum or the, you know, Brad is doing with XRP. Yet when a Bitcoin falls, it just drags us all to the depths of Mordor. Um, so uh, there's, there's structural reasons in the marketplace for that. So if, if you, your trading pair is Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes down, it drags everything down with that. And also if that becomes the de facto pricing mechanism for everything, uh, if Bitcoin loses value, even though 
relative to Bitcoin, your your Satoshi value is the same, your fiat value falls. And so the whole market falls. Uh, what will happen, I think, is when we have more sophisticated investments in financial uh, instruments in the marketplace, uh, that that decoupling will happen gradually over time. The other thing is we're going to have a whole wave of instruments that are crypto-like, but will not be correlated with Bitcoin, like security tokens, for example. You know, when those things come, you're going to have businesses that are equities uh, and they're trading on open markets. They look like cryptocurrencies. In many ways, they travel like cryptocurrencies, but their value is derived from actual enterprises. And it would be catastrophic if Bitcoin falls 20 percent in a day and that causes, uh, you know, your micro S&P 500 of the uh, SME space to collapse with it just for the sake of Bitcoin falling. So I think when that happens and we see institutional investors come in and more sophisticated financial products come in, uh, we'll see a gradual decoupling. Now, we've already seen decoupling. Uh, it's certainly more decoupled today, and Bitcoin dominance is, is smaller today than it was five years ago. Uh, but it's still Bitcoin's world to live in, and it's going to probably be that way for at least the next 12 to 24 months, if not longer. Interesting. Interesting. So we do have some time to wait, but if that's any consultants to uh, viewers and investors, just goes to show you how early we are in this space. We're early adopters and early investors. So the next question is from Maple Candy, and they're asking about advertisement for Cardano on TV and radio, about Cardano's benefits and how you would use advertisement to push Cardano forward. So yeah, that's a good question of how do we advertise Cardano and what, what does it even mean to advertise Cardano? You know, I remember in the early days of Bitcoin, BitPay did a lot of crazy things like they sponsored a, one of the bulls. I think it was the St. Petersburg bull. And so we ended up having the Bitcoin bull. And uh, there was a lot of crazy publicity stunts that were done in 2013 and 2014 and 15 to a variety of degrees of success. There was even several commercials and I think there was talk of a Super Bowl commercial, but I don't think that particular one materialized. But there were college uh, football commercials that were done. And, you know, it's a good question of is it meaningful to use traditional media to advertise? And I would argue that we're in a post-traditional media world and the demographics that still consume these things are probably a bit too disengaged uh, to, to really do things well. I mean, if you look at the growth pattern of Facebook, there's never really been a product that has been so incredibly good at capturing the elderly and capturing mature adults without ever having to run an advertisement. I mean, and because their growth strategy was focus on the young, get them in certain niche enclaves. And then when they escape from those enclaves, they have an incentive to go viral and bring their social network in. And the process of doing that, they don't discriminate. They're going to bring mom and pa and grandma and they're going to use it to communicate with them. So similarly, one can argue that the growth pattern of cryptocurrencies is probably going to look at the, 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 same out, the, the same flow. So, you know, if you look at the demographics that currently possess crypto and use crypto, it's mostly a game of people under the age of 30. Uh, so, you know, I would argue that the best thing to do is focus on economies where the majority of people are under the age of 30. Africa as a whole is like this. Over 70% of the population in Ethiopia is under the age of 30. And statistically, if you're between the age of 18 and 30 and anywhere on the planet, you, you have a greater than 50% chance have, of having heard of cryptocurrencies and a greater than 25% chance of having at least participated in one cryptocurrency transaction or installed a wallet. 
that's pretty remarkable if you think about it. So if you have to bet and say, where am I going to historically see the greatest growth of adoption, it's probably going to be within that demographic. And so it's going to be biased towards countries that have those demographics in, uh, in uh, large scale. But here's the thing. Once they come in, now you have a surrogate to broadcast that to their friends and family and they're not going to discriminate and say, I'm only going to broadcast it to my brother and sister. They're also going to tell mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. And that's where organic use cases come from, especially on remittance use cases. Like the daughter goes to London to go work as a maid and then sends $100 of value home every, um, every month to mom or to grandma uh, to take care of them. Very, very common, especially in the Philippines or Mexico. Uh, and if they're doing this with crypto instead of doing it with dollars because they can save on fees, that's an example of how you get that demographic in and you reach that particular demographic. Uh, so uh, the majority of our adoption efforts tend to be focused in that age category. And um, the easiest way of reaching them is to reach them through digital formats. So you do that with Telegram groups, Facebook groups. You do that with podcasts. Like the intellectual dark web has a huge reach. And so if you can intermingle with that, you can end up getting millions of people. Uh, and uh, they, they also tend to be pretty proactive and you tend to have a two-way conversation with these people. So there's a different form of social engagement. The dragnet style advertising of the 20th century, like radio ads and television ads, I've always viewed that as like carpet bombing. Sometimes it works, but it's it's probably better to use smart bombs or precision bombs you can you can get you can get much better impact and a much lower cost and a lot less collateral damage in the uh, in the process. So uh, no, I, I don't think we'll be going down that road. But you know, reasonable people can disagree, and if certain people want to invest money and uh, do this, it's a decentralized ecosystem. So um, so have fun with that. Uh, one last thing to mention, you know, yeah, it's important to have the USPs clear, and it's important to have consumable content that is suitable for virality. So this is where you need to have infographics, and this is where you need to have three to five page handouts of what is Cardano and why is it interesting, what is a financial operating system, what is this whole financial inclusions thing about, and why is our system better than the competing systems, and uh, you know what are these concepts like peer review and formal methods? Uh, these have to be generated, and that's uh, that's a provenance of good marketing, and it's one of the things the foundation was responsible for, which they never did. So. Uh, we're now doing that. And um, once those things are done, then they can be shared. And uh, only when you have that kernel of basic things done, is it worthwhile actually spending a meaningful amount of money in a marketing campaign? Or otherwise, what you're doing is just throwing people into the deep end. You're saying, hey, there's this Cardano thing, go and read a 35-page paper and watch hours and hours and hours of YouTube videos. It's like, great. Uh, and for the five people who do that, they're very loyal. And for the million people who don't do that, uh, you've lost their attention because they all have short attention spans these days. Yeah, I think that's, that's some really good points. I think uh, partially related to that, you were talking about, you know, the potential in Africa with the young people. And one of the questions we had, which comes from Jack Booted through nine, uh, hopefully that's that's uh, correct, uh, is which country i mean they're asking particularly are you involved in kenya but i think more generally uh they're curious about what countries in africa iwk is involved in i think uh, i just get involved in a few different countries and so some people are getting maybe kind of lost uh, about which countries uh, iwk is focusing in and what projects are in which areas 
So we have a 52 country strategy for Africa. Um, so we don't discriminate and say, oh boy, Ethiopia, but screw those guys in Kenya. I mean, no, it's like, you want your Africa and you're in Africa. And the reality is Africa has just tons of cross-pollination, lots of travel. You talk to a guy in Uganda, odds are you're also talking to people in Mozambique and Angola and South Africa and Tanzania and Zimbabwe. You get to meet everybody um, and everybody's always talking, trading and traveling. Um, so uh, the key is, though, to have kind of a collection of countries that you feel best represent a pan-African viewpoint. And so you, if you wanted to chop Africa into zones, you can look at north, middle and south and uh, in the northern realm, I'd say the power centers are Morocco and um, Egypt. If you go in kind of a cross section of the middle parts uh, in that area, you're looking at Nigeria, Kenya, and Ethiopia. And then if you go into um, Eastern Africa and South Southern Africa, you know the big guy, is South Africa, that 90% of all the capital markets are there, and they're the wealthiest country in the continent. But then you can't ignore Uganda and Rwanda and Tanzania and so forth. They, they're certainly power centers. Uh, so if you have an African strategy, you have to have people in these realms. And uh, then, then you, going beyond that, there are certainly a lot of countries that are greenfield that have tremendous opportunity. But the problem is their infrastructure is really not amenable at the moment to being able to do meaningful things with our space. Uh, so Congo, for example, uh, they're not too worried about digital currencies at the moment. They, they're dealing with war and Ebola and you know, just bad infrastructure. It's, it's a lot. It's tough. Uh, whereas Rwanda is growing at 8 to 10% per year. They've laid half a million miles of fiber optic cable in that country. They have great infrastructure that they've built up. Their president is extremely relentless in trying to modernize the country. They recently made a deal with Carnegie Mellon University to create a computer science master's program there that's accredited in the United States. Uh, they bring in people from Singapore and China and others in. So if you go there and say, hey, would you like to create a, a business and property registration system that's blockchain based? Not only are they interested in these things, they're bound to have a computer scientist or two on staff that you can talk to and have reasonable conversation with. You know, another country going through tremendous modernization at the moment is Ethiopia. This is a country that has a very pan-African view. The AU is there. UNICEF is there. They have strong participation from the World Bank and the UN. Uh, and they have massive growth. Yet they still have a lot of structural problems. Like, for example, they don't have a stock market. 100 million people live in this country. Tons of businesses are forming. Lots of wealth creation but no stock market. So if you want to do an IPO, you have to reverse merger into South Africa or somewhere else. That's just a weird thing. So their, their prime minister is a cryptographer. He's the only one in the entire world. He, he wrote papers on symmetric ciphers and he broke codes during the air train war. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's very easy to have a conversation with him about cryptocurrencies because he's one of the few politicians that actually can read your, your white papers and understand them. Uh, so there's a tremendous urge to modernize, and uh, he has a lot of popular support to do that, and do that in ways that don't disrupt necessarily the incumbents too much. Uh, so I, I think uh, you know these, you have to have a balance of small to large. If you're looking at Ethiopia, you you know you have to have a three to five year time horizon probably to do anything significantly meaningful that's going to generate revenue and large scale adoption. Whereas countries like Uganda, Rwanda, you'll get an opportunity to do things on the horizon of three months to six months that are meaningful. It's just they're going to affect a considerably smaller population and have less of a pan-African view about them. So our African strategy, it's run by a guy named John O'Connor. He's based in Addis Ababa. 
uh, is to basically have a, a bag of these things. So we keep good contacts with people in Nigeria, Kenya, and all, all throughout the continent. Uh, and we're planning to do some pilots in large countries and pilots in small countries with the small countries bearing fruit quickly and the larger countries basically gradually growing into uh, meaningful adoption. But what's really cool about this, is you only need to get one or two of these things rolling and, and before you really see a snowball effect in terms of uh, its impact on Cardano. Uh, because, for example, if we can digitize the coffee farmers in Ethiopia, even a 10% penetration would give us 130,000 people in our system, which would probably eclipse all of the daily use of Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, you know, especially if we get lots of insurance products and credit products and other things pushed to that portfolio, you know, and you can you can look at every country. There's dozens of things to do. Uh, so uh, so it's it's nice to have these things and it's it's nice to be able to experiment with these things. Now, so far, if you're asking which countries probably had the most cryptocurrency participation, I'd say Kenya. And also Kenya has had a lot of monetary experimentation, like there was the M-Pesa and uh, Elizabeth is out there with BitPesa and she's trying to you know replicate that. And there's some great businesses out there and we always get invited to go and spend some time in Nairobi. Uh, and I'll definitely go out sometime next year and spend some time there. So, uh, so we're quite interested in Kenya. Just there's only finite amounts of us and finite amounts of time. So we got to be strategic. And that's one of those 2019 countries. That's awesome. Charles, I wanted to follow up what you were saying, um, ask you a quick follow-up question. How competitive do you think Cardano is in the landscape of developing nations as opposed to other cryptocurrencies? I mean, we don't have to go in any cryptocurrency in, in, in particular, but is it Cardano alone that's pushing towards these countries and pushing towards these solutions? Yeah, I think this is usually the part in the interview where I bash EOS, right? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, um, no, I mean, setting the other cryptocurrencies aside, you know, the, the reality is that if you're going to do business in developing countries, it's about relationships. It's not about technology. Um, the first thing you must do is establish credibility and relationships within the jurisdictions and basically prove that you're a good actor and you, you want to, to do good things. And those things you do won't just unilaterally benefit you. They'll, they'll benefit locals and create local jobs, local money and make people's lives easier. Uh, so whether that's a centralized or decentralized solution, it's, uh, it's the first major task. Then, you know, once you get beyond that, there are definitely the USPs of platforms. Uh, and uh, you have to have both a permission ledger solution and a permissionless ledger solution based upon facts and circumstances. Uh, where the permission ledger solutions come into play are when you're talking about massive scale things, lots of things going on, where you do need auditability and time stamping and some degree of immutability, but there is enough credibility in those processes that it's okay for the government to run it. And it's okay for a federation of actors to run it. So like coffee farmers in Ethiopia, they've been doing coffee for a while. They're pretty credible. And, uh, you know, the, the, and Starbucks is quite happy about their output there. Uh, so we can kind of trust them to run a supply chain and uh, all the parties uh, have incentives to, to work together in that respect, as long as uh, you, you carefully structure things. Whereas other things like you know countries where the rule of law has been a bit dubious and you know claims and circumstances tend to get a little changed from time to time, like Zimbabwe in particular uh, or Angola, uh, there you really just can't trust locals to run things. So maybe it makes more sense to put a lot of this infrastructure in a permissionless setting 
uh, and kind of make it more transnational in nature. And I would also argue identity falls in this category. It's, it's something you should be able to take with you. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to bind it to a particular jurisdiction, just putting too much control in that. So uh, the discussion of that spectrum of does it need to be permissioned or permissionless and is it wise to go on one side or the other side is kind of the next step after you've built those relationships and that substance in the jurisdiction. Uh, and then, uh, then going beyond that, uh, it's just doing pilots. And our rule for pilots is that they got to be lo- run by locals. So even if the high-level guys and gals are IOHK engineers in Germany and UK, it's really important to have a local partner and local employees in the jurisdiction actually setting things up and writing code. Because the politician or the policymaker or the businessman says, oh, this isn't some guy in New York City who's doing this or Colorado or Tokyo these are my neighbors. And if we embrace this venture, we adopt this technology, then it's going to create local jobs that are high paying, high quality, and are here to stay. So not only are we modernizing and improving the infrastructure, we're creating employment, which is politically a very smart thing to embrace as a policymaker, regardless of uh, you know the upsides and downsides. It also creates a huge barrier to exit for your technology, because if they happen to strip it out or replace it with someone else, it likely will liquidate those jobs or diminish them in some way. And you've now created a bunch of political enemies. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, you have to be very strategic about how you layer these things and how you create substance in the jurisdiction. And then exactly what are you seeking to do? Now, in terms of particular USPs, like, you know, why is Cardano better than, let's say, Stellar or, you know, any of these other things? You know, the, the thing about our platform has always been modularity and has always been trying to give people a lot more flexibility and choice in the way they roll things out. For example, if you look at the evolution of the K-EVM and Yella and the whole K-Framework, the, where that research thread is going over the next three to five years is this concept of having the ability to write smart contracts in dozens and eventually hundreds of common programming languages. Uh, and this cost to add new language support will get smaller year by year, and the amount of people who add new support will grow year by year, and the quality of that tool set will continue to evolve. That's what we're doing with runtime verification. There really is no other company in the space or protocol in the space that's thinking with this level of clarity or broadness. I mean, what they're basically doing is saying, writing a VM is hard. Let's just go to WebAssembly because they seem to have this figured out. And let's just hope that WebAssembly's attract enough people to live in that environment. And what we're doing is having a completely different approach, which is based on beautiful things like LOVM, but actually has much better science behind it. And it's uniquely well-suited for things like formal verification, for example, and the tooling is only going to get better there. So from a certain respect, I think there's just certain things we have, like K and Yella, uh, that uh, that will give us a huge advantage for dApps. And then on the other side of the token, I just think that Ouroboros and, uh, and the way we've been going about the construction of Cardano's core technology is just really elegant and it's trustworthy. You know, if you're a decision maker and a policy maker and you're willing to put your career on the line for technology, you really, really, really have to have a lot of appreciation, trust, and respect that that technology works correctly. There was this old saying in enterprise computing, which was no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. And that wasn't because IBM computers were the best priced or the most reliable or they would always work. It was because they had such a great brand and reputation. Even if they broke, People would say, ah, but it was IBM. How could you have known, 
right? They're, they're, they're the good guys. They got this stuff figured out. And similarly, when you embrace formal methods and peer review, you're adding extra layers of insurance for policymakers that that technology is solid, much more solid than your competitors. And frankly, the competitors just can't match that. And if asked to match that, the only thing they can do is attack the process and say formal methods is wrong or peer review is wrong, which is like a bad position to be in. It's like saying, oh, well, uh, you know, I know my medicine works because we, we went through the FDA trials and did, you know, all this testing over 10 years. How do you know you're going, oh, the FDA is corrupt and it's bad and don't believe anything the FDA does. But my cure for cancer works. Trust me. It's, it's like crazy. You hear this stuff and you say, this guy's full of uh, crap. And similarly, as we've written over 40 academic papers since the beginning of the Cardano project, mostly related to Cardano, 20 of which I believe have gone through peer review, if not more. Uh, and we're, all, we're now starting to see the fruits of formal methods in our stack, especially with the wallet backend shipping with 1.4. And moving into 2019, a lot more of our stack will be verified. So that delta between uh, for code quality and protocol quality between us and our competitors is growing at a pretty rapid rate. And it's going to be uncatchable at some point. Finally, there's a governance component to all of this, uh, the who pays and who decides. And I just cannot for the life of me, when we have Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Cash SV and Ethereum Classic and all of these things, you know, say with a straight face to a policymaker, oh, my currency is better than all these other guys if I have no strategy for mitigation of these incidents. And the only way you really can get around that is by having a CIP process and being able to vote on these things and engaging your community and making sure that people don't feel disenfranchised and providing funding for people to be able to build the things that they want. When people don't have a voice, that's when they pick up the sickles and the hammers and the torches and the pitchforks and go kill the king. And that's exactly what's happened historically over the last nine years in our spaces. We've seen a emergence of a lot of cryptocurrencies out of frustration for the incumbents ignoring or being tone deaf. So uh, another USP is kind of meta to all of this, going beyond just the quality of the protocols and the quality of the software and going beyond particular feature sets. And it has to do with, are these guys and gals who are running this ecosystem thinking very carefully about checks and balances and good governance? If we have that, then we're in a good position to be able to say with a straight face that if you put your digital identity in this system, it's going to be around unadulterated, still reliable five or 10 years from now. And if we can't say that with a straight face, it's immoral to recommend to people to adopt our system. You're basically telling some of the most vulnerable and poorest people, trust us and let's just hope to God it works because it'll make me rich. And well, if it doesn't, well, screw you. Uh, and that's unfortunately all too common with a lot of the projects in the space. So uh, we feel that you have to take things systematically and methodically, but you have to think about the whole banana, the, the whole puzzle, every piece of it. You can't just do one or two and say, okay, now that we've done one or two, let's go encourage adoption. No, unless you have a pretty good story for all these things, it's it's not reasonable to seek growth. That's why I don't worry too much about our competitors. I, I just see a lot of noise right now in the marketplace. Yeah, I think it's... You know, really interesting to hear. I think something else uh, people will be interested in hearing it is kind of a more personal question. So if you don't want to answer it, that's okay. Uh, people are kind of interested, especially a uh, user XOMT, and kind of what your childhood was like. Usually your story of how you got involved in cryptocurrency starts with the Ron Paul movement, how you got involved with that. But, you know, it would be interesting to kind of take a step back. Uh, you know, young Charles deciding to study mathematics, this kind of stuff. 
Uh, it'd be interesting to hear what that part of your childhood was like. I, I tend not to get too much into my past, but you know, I, I grew up in Hawaii and I lived in this little town on the east side of Maui and uh, I was a pretty precocious kid. Yeah, I loved reading and um, I was homeschooled for uh, my, my K through 12 years and it allowed me to graduate quite early uh, from high school. And uh, I had a normal, happy childhood. My dad is a doctor and uh, his brother is a doctor. My grandfather was OBGYN. He delivered thousands of kids over his career, including me. Uh, and uh, on my other side of my, my mom's side, my grandfather there was a lineman and he worked in the cable business and worked his way all the way up to being an executive at a cable company. And he did, he got a bunch of patents and uh, he was a pretty bright guy, but he only went to high school and he fought in the Korean War. He was in Marine demolitions. And he was such a humble guy that uh, he got a bunch of medals in the war. We didn't even know about it until 50 years later, we were cleaning out his basement. We found him in a box, he never told us. Uh, so they got some great family members and I had a great childhood. Uh, but it's a standard, normal childhood that a lot of us have in life. Nothing special about me. Uh, you know, I, I, everybody's always looking for the story behind people and say, well, what, what was the thing? Or how, how did, when, when did this person demonstrate greatness? And, you know, I, I look to history and you look at all these amazing figures, like, for example, Ulysses S. Grant, where there was just absolutely no indication that Ulysses S. Grant was ever going to be somebody prominent until the moment that he had a chance to rise to, to some event. Um, he was born 1822 and, uh, you know, no one ever really respected him or looked up to him. And, you know, he was average throughout his whole life. Uh, he went to West Point, graduated middle of his class. He was a great horseman, but they decided to make him a quartermaster, you know, keep him as far away from the cavalry as possible. And he got kicked out of the army uh, for being a drunk. Uh, and then he was basically poor and destitute. And at the outbreak of uh, the Civil War, he was living off $800 a year. And just uh, four years later, he was general of the army, commanding a million men, and then uh, then became president and served for eight years there and did some really remarkable things. So I think it's less meaningful about where you came from, and it's more meaningful about when opportunities arrive in your life, what do you make of that chance? You get them. You know, you'll get statistically at least one or two, but usually more than that. And if you're real clever, you can put yourself into situations where you get a lot of them. But just because you have these things doesn't automatically mean you're going to succeed. Uh, you know, I, I know a, a lot of people, especially in the East Coast, that are descendants of prominent families like the Mellons and the Drexels and the Rockefellers. And what's really astounding is those are people who are put in the best of all possible situations. Imagine, you know, growing up knowing you have 14 trust funds. And you automatically are going to get into the best schools in the world. And you automatically are going to get all these amazing business contacts. And if you want to go into politics, you can go into politics. If you want to be a fashion designer, you can do that. No one's going to say no to you. So on a silver platter, you're given orders of magnitude more opportunity than any of us could ever imagine having. And yet statistically, a lot of these people wash out. So uh, it is important, I'd say, to, to you know, put yourself through some adversity and struggle and to have a lot of ups and downs, a lot of lumps and bumps, and to recognize great opportunities and go do that. You know, I've had a very rocky path in the cryptocurrency space. I started out with the Bitcoin Education Project where I made no money at all and I gave my product away for free. It was, uh, you know, open source classes, Creative Commons classes, and then I started BitShares with Dan Larimer. That didn't work out so well for me. And 
you know, I started Ethereum with Vitalik Buterin and a few others. And, you know, despite having a very meaningful and significant role, I, I, uh, I actually didn't make any money from Ethereum. I was entitled to 293,000 Ether. I gave it all away. I didn't take any of it. Uh, had I kept it at the all-time high, it would have been worth over $300 million. So, you know, I'm a founder of Ethereum, and that's a great title, I guess, but financially it didn't do much for me. Uh, and uh, and also the Ethereum community doesn't like me too much. They say pretty horrible things. So if I, ha- I just stopped at my second venture and just left the space after Ethereum, uh, nobody would know who I was. And, you know, I w- would have only had sadness and scorn and... Uh, and no success at all. But I kept going and I started IOHK and we went and built uh, something very meaningful and I'd like to believe we've made a difference in this space. So I think the key to a good life is just deciding what you want and having the tenacity and the resilience to be able to go and chase it and endure the pain and the suffering to get there and never taking anything for granted and understanding when opportunities are there, taking advantage of those opportunities and going and running with them. You know, the other thing is you have to develop a very thick skin. You know, I get brutally criticized on a pretty regular basis, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Uh, But the problem with the way the world works now is that it's become very two-dimensional. What people do is they they don't actually listen to what you're saying. They instead, they listen for trigger words, keywords, and then they'll take some minor thing in a two-hour rant and then they'll take that, blow it up, and say that's who you are and what you're about. You're 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 basically a like a, a, a paper sketch. You're not a real person. You're a comic at that point. And then they say, well, this person's X because they said Y. Uh, for example, when I said to MetaMask, you know who I am, right? Now there's memes floating all around, and you know for months I've been getting hammered about that. No one understands the context behind those comments or why they were made and where I was at when I made them and all these things going on. I probably sent out tens of thousands of tweets. I, you know, I, I communicate with people every day, 18 hours a day. Uh, I've worked with thousands of people in this entire space, but everybody now knows me because of one tweet and they know who I am because of one tweet, according to them, right? So you just can't let these things define you. You can't let people uh, decide who you are. Uh, only you get to do that. And um, you shouldn't look to your past to define who you are. You should look to the things you've built and the things you continue to do and the principles you have and uh, the people you work with and the projects you take on. Uh, and uh, the other, the last point about all of this is to know when to quit. Um, you know, there's probably no greater example of that than Bill Gates. You know, he, for his time in the tech industry, you know, he started Microsoft, I think it was 1976, and he, 64%, 36% with him and Paul Allen. And, he, you know, he grew it into this Leviathan. And by the end of the 90s, he was God. You know, he, like everybody had to plan their IT businesses around what Microsoft was doing. It was worth so much money. And, uh, you know, he, the, the government had to get involved to try to destroy him because they were the only ones who could take him down. He won. He beat everybody. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, he said, you know, I'm just not going to be the CEO anymore. You know, there's more to life than dominating the IT industry and kind of handed over the reins to other people and uh, he went on and now he's doing significantly more meaningful work and probably will end up curing malaria and saving millions of lives and HIV and saving millions of lives as a consequence of that pivot. 
So yes, he could have stayed in and maybe Microsoft would have uh, been clever enough to get the search engine and there would be no Google or maybe they would have bought Facebook and they would have had that plank and their market cap would be twice as large and he'd have twice as much money. But all the good that he's done in the second part of his career would not be there. So knowing when to leave, like what Satoshi did or what Gates did, I think is the other side of the equation uh, and uh, probably just as meaningful as knowing when not to give up and uh, having those resilience parts. Powerful answer, Charles. Powerful answer. And I would like to pivot to what you said earlier about um, finding trigger words. I think that people have natural biases towards certain people, and then they're looking for that particular moment where they can jump on you. And um, I think you get that a lot. So there are definitely some people that are not too fond of you, and they're looking for whatever they can to, to just stir up controversy. But anyway, the next question comes from Reagan Dunnigan, and he says, Nietzsche has said, he who has what? He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. What is Cardano's why, and what are some of the most difficult how problems? Well, you know, I wrote why Cardano. <laughs> it's, it's its own website. Um, so if I had to summarize why Cardano, really what I wanted to do was build a financial operating system for those who don't have one. So what, what does that mean? Well, you know, have when you, you're a human being in a modern economy, you know, you, you, you have people you need to do business with, you have value you need to protect, you have relationships that you need to extend across space and time, sometimes months, sometimes years. And if you're able to navigate, negotiate all these things, suddenly you have a car and a house and a business and productive output. And when bad things happen, like somebody runs into your car or your home burns down in the wildfires of California, or you need some money to grow your business because it's a recession, it just materializes. And it materializes not from friends and family. It materializes from people you don't know. You probably never met faceless people. That's the miracle of the modern economy. And it's why we've gone from a world where most people die before the age of 40, 45. And if you have kids, half of them die before they even reach adulthood uh, to a world where most people now live in pretty good situations. So the problem with the financial systems that we have is those systems were constructed on 20th century notions. They weren't designed accounting for the internet. They weren't designed accounting for globalization. They weren't designed to be inclusive. They were designed to be the spoils of war of the victors of World War II and their extensions and those who supported us in overcoming the communists. So now we live in the 21st century where the rules of the game have changed Technology has changed. Society has changed. We have, everybody's walking around with supercomputers in their pocket, yet we're living in this very analog, old, digital, paper, excuse me, paper-based uh, financial world, and we're moving to a digital world. So the why of Cardano succinctly is to try to offer a parallel stack that is very different but interoperable with the legacy stack of the 21st century and propagate that stack throughout the developing world as a way that people can build something instead of top down from the bottom up. And it's a huge social experiment in a certain respect. Society and human beings aren't so good at making decisions in a decentralized way. There is an overwhelming temptation to create a leader, a king, uh, or a committee, or a federation, a congress, or a senate, and say, these people are in charge. They represent us. 
go figure it out. The problem is those people never actually fully represent you and they get too powerful. And the very first thing they do is they try to create situations where it's really hard to get rid of them. If you look at the United States Congress, for example, uh, it's as about as popular as genital herpes, yet 90% of these guys keep their jobs every two years. I can't imagine anything where you know, person would probably rather get kicked in the face than have you stay at work, yet still somehow you keep your job you consistently, one election cycle after another election cycle and so forth because of the gerrymandering and the way you know these things work. Okay, well, what if we had a system where somehow, some way, you don't have a congressman or a senator or a king or a president, yet somehow, some way, uh, that system is capable of figuring out where to go what to pay for, how to make your life better. Now, we've done this in certain complex adaptive systems like markets. Markets are somehow able to price fish. They're somehow able to price computers and cell phones. And that's the aggregation of millions of collective decisions concurrently uh, without a, you know, a central authority deciding that. And whenever a central authority tries to decide that, like with a communist government, usually they do a horrible job and the whole thing falls apart. So you can't even try to steer it from the top. It has to be bottom up. So the, the other why of Cardano is to say, not only can we build a financial operating system and give this to the developing world, but then we can use the emergence of this parallel economy as a great social experiment to see what happens when no one's in control and to see if you end up getting a better outcome than when someone's in control. Because if you can have a situation where no one's controlled, but you end up having a better outcome and you can... Uh, still price in externalities like environmentalism and you know these other things, then you end up getting a world where you can't have a Xi Jinping and social credit or you can't have a Donald Trump and all these problems. You end up getting a much, much better world, uh, which doesn't have these, these egos and strong men and big personalities that divide us and turn us against each other for personal power and enrichment. Now, in terms of the how, you know, that, that's that's actually a lot easier because it's just a matter of knowing first how to build good software and design good protocols. And in everything you do, you always have to think to yourself, how do you avoid a cult of personality? So for example, with the research we do, if you look at it, contrast that with EOS or Ethereum, that's all about with EOS, the brilliance of Dan Larimer or Vitalik with Ethereum. And Vitalik will lead us to the mountaintop and figure out how these things are going to be done. So Vitalik will discover Casper. He will discover Plasma. You know, he'll figure this out, right? Even if he's God and a genius, that's not a decentralized ecosystem. If you rely on the lone samurai up on the hilltop to defend the village, the samurai, if he dies, your village is done. Now, what we do with our research is a contrast is we go to the universities, we go through a very faceless process, uh, the peer review process that we go through, you don't actually have names on the papers and the peer reviewers, you don't know who they are. They come from a pool of people that are associated with a conference. I can't think of anything more decentralized than that because you can literally replace every single scientist and every single peer reviewer uh, and still end up having a perfectly functional system that continues to produce good science. The other thing is that we have universities all across the world, at Tokyo, at Tokyo Tech, at University of Athens, at ETH Zurich, uh, Kent University, Lancaster, Oxford University, uh, people at University of Edinburgh, people at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, uh, you know, at Rensselaer Polytech Institute, uh, Virginia Commonwealth Institute. I think there's more than a dozen of them. So you have 
tons of different institutions with different philosophies and different viewpoints and different goals and different agendas, yet somehow they're able to coordinate in some cases in a very loose autonomous way to do good science. And that science never has my name on it. It's one of the rules. Even if I wrote a paper, I won't put my name on it because I don't want people to say, oh, well, Charles Hoskinson is going to figure this out. I want a situation where I can get hit by a bus and it's still going to get done. So I think that's the most important component of the how for whatever we're doing is that we must be vigilant to decentralize the execution of all the things we do, whether that be the software development or the science or the community management or the use of funds. All of these things have to come from a multi-model, multi-actor setup. And if you can do those things, then I think you can execute quite well. And whatever you end up building is built with checks and balances. We had an issue with Michael Parsons. There was two other independent entities to put considerable pressure on him, the guardians of Cardano, to put considerable pressure on him to the point where he felt compelled to resign. Contrast it with Tezos, where the only way to get him to resign was to pay him off. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's, it's, and he knew that. So you just sit and say, eh, I can't be affected by these class actions and all I'm going to do is make their lives miserable. So let's just wait it out and then see what kind of deal we can get. Michael didn't get a payoff. He left. Uh, so, so that's the great part about these systems when you get them right. It's even when you make mistakes or the wrong people are in the wrong roles, you have an immune system for these things, and they tend to filter their way out over time, and conduct tends to normalize towards the standards of the community. So that's, I suppose, the why and the how in, in, a, in a nutshell. But it's a, it's a fun thing to think about, and you know, maybe we get it wrong, but that's okay. If somebody gets it right, then you know we all win. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's really important to uh, not only talk about decentralization, but actually try and implement it in your protocol. I think people don't really realize how difficult it is to build a decentralized ecosystem, and how hard it is to you know avoid this tendency for people to just focus on one central place, one central actor. Uh, but one question we had, uh, which is from Gary Golden. Uh, was basically asking how the ecosystem will evolve from a settlement layer point of view. So they're wondering, uh, basically, will we have other tokens on the settlement layer? What role will these tokens play? And kind of what is your vision for uh, how this kind of side of the ecosystem will grow? Like, for example, will we have uh, stable coins on the settlement layer and this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question, too. So. Uh, accounting and computation are distinctly different things, and computation is an order of magnitude more tricky, and it's also much higher liability. So I think one of the great mistakes of Ethereum was to so tightly couple these things that they're indistinguishable. You know, you kind of, you're kind of uh, your peanut butter and your jelly got smashed together, and you just now it's now it's its own thing, right? And so, uh, as an example, you know, if you look at things like Silk Road, or you know, you look at things like um, you know, uh, an assassination market or prediction markets or decentralized exchange, these are all live in the world of computation. Uh, and the minute you decentralize them, the operators of that system are the ones that have huge amounts of liability. And there's actually precedent in some cases of operators of decentralized protocols to put these people in jail uh, for various crimes. Tor is a great example, where Tor exit node operators were arrested for trafficking child porn. They weren't the consumers of it. They didn't search for it. They weren't hosting it. They were just the proxy moving it around and they end up getting snatched up and in some jurisdiction thrown in jail. 
so it's important from a liability perspective and also just from a complexity perspective to separate these two things. And that's what we did conceptually with Cardano and the accounting lives in one layer. That's SL. It's the lower liability kind of looks like Bitcoin style layer. And then the more complicated layers called CL. And because we have them in layers, you can actually have different uh, philosophies. And that's why we have the KVM and Yella and these types of things. And we'll inevitably add more. Now, in terms of what SL is going to look like, uh, there's some unfinished business there. So first, UTXO accounting is a real good idea and a lot of merit to it. Uh, so what we basically did is extended it in two directions. One is we created a way of making UTXO accounting and Ethereum-style accounts interoperable with each other. And uh, we call that chimeric ledgers. And Sebastian, you did a very good video on that. Uh, and uh, then two, we decided to extend the UTXO model so it has more capabilities so that you could actually use a smart contract language on top of it. So you have richer scripting. Now, these two things together uh, give you a very fertile environment for a multi-asset ledger that actually has real good behaviors behind those assets, whether it be a security token or an ERC-20 style token or, or maybe a more sophisticated token. And then add in uh, Marlowe and Plutus, and Marlowe in particular, and now you actually have a DSL where you can embed within those assets in a Turing incomplete language, uh, very sophisticated uh, uh, financial transactions. So you can say, hey, it's going to be a three of five multi-sig on Monday, but on Tuesday, it's going to upgrade to five of seven with these key holders. But on the Sabbath, uh, it'll be one of seven, but randomly pick them and you know, uh, based on some event that happens the day before. I mean, if you want to go crazy, you could do that. And ordinarily, if you're writing that code, you're bound to screw it up. But if you write it in Marlowe, it's actually pretty straightforward. And um, you can actually verify these things are done correctly. That's the power of returning a complete language. And then what you do is you say, all right, well, that's basically just all about accounting. And the natural direction there is to either move the assets off ledger into other ledgers. So that's what sidechains is all about or to move those assets into domains where I can do useful things with them. And that's where the MPC research is going, the multi-party computation. So in that direction, you're saying things like, I'd like to gamble. So, you know, that's Kaleidoscope and Royale, or eventually I'd like to go trade on a decentralized exchange. And actually Bernardo is working on a DEX using MPC. So you can go into those private domains and you basically use the blockchain as the entry and exit point and uh, the uh, the uh, matching server to connect people together, but then they do it with them and their other participants off-chain. It's a great scalability solution because all that bloat's never committed. Or if you want a dedicated system, both permissioned or permissionless, you can move it to one of the computation layers. Now you'd say, but why would I want to do that? I said, well, how about you want to use Bittrex? What if Bittrex was able to just run their own ledger? So as opposed to having these bizarro cold wallet, hot wallet things and trying to get them perfectly right, and they never quite do, and hacks happen all the time and people lose money, what if you just send a sidechain transaction to a private ledger that they control? And as a result of controlling it, they can bet into the ledger all kinds of logic to protect them, like the ability to reverse transactions or freeze transactions or things like that. We say, oh, but doesn't that violate the principles of cryptocurrencies? And you say, well, hang on a second here. They already have your private keys. And you've been KYC'd and AML, so you have no privacy or control over the asset, but you're paying the price of having an attack surface that's the entire network. 
wouldn't it be better to put it into a permission network where they have control over that? They can ensure that uh, your assets are safe and if there's a hack, they can get recourse. So that's kind of the, the nuances of when you start separating these two things and what you can do. So you can move it to an Ethereum style ledger and do Ethereum style things. You can move it into a even more exotic stranger ledger with different and operating environment, or you can move into permission ledgers and it kind of lives there. Another example would be these coffee farmers in Ethiopia. Let's say we get them all into a permission ledger system and their identities and their economic history lives there. You would like to move state value and information between that permission ledger and the Cardano network, especially for the purposes of lending and risk. So it's important to have those connection points. So succinctly, what Cardano is going to evolve to in 2019, and we're already starting to see a lot of these core components solidify, is we'll have the extended UTXO model, we'll have the chimeric ledger notion combined with sidechains, Ouroboros will be fully activated, fairly performant, and then we'll start wiring on um, MPC to the ledger uh, and then MPC will allow you to do a lot of cool off-chain things, uh, including up to decentralized exchange at some point, and you'll be able to issue all kinds of cool assets on the system. So our hope is eventually to have a multi-asset system. Now, the last point is that this asset issuance will be native asset issuance. What that effectively means is instead of paying your transaction fees at ADA, you pay them in the asset you've issued. So if you're a miner of the system, when you validate these transactions, you don't just get ADA transaction fees, uh, you get whatever issue, tokens you're validating and whatever transactions you're validating. And there can even be consensus logic behind that. So maybe you get inflation in multiple currencies. So it's the first time I think that's been done in the cryptocurrency space, and it's going to be an exciting experiment. Now, you asked about stable coins, and um, there's kind of a few flavors of those, but the two most prominent are asset-backed and algorithmic stable coins. Uh, asset-backed are things like Tether or the USD coin, where... Somebody somewhere says, if I got one of these tethers, somebody got a dollar. It's one to one. Now, whether they're redeemable or not, you know, that's kind of a question. But at the very least, this concept that it's backed by something, something exists to have it, is what tends to create value there. Now, there's a lot of people that say the only way we are going to get to effective commerce and effective credit for cryptocurrencies is if there is an asset that is reasonably non-volatile. And I think that's a very fair argument. Uh, you know, because if you're a business, you're not a currency speculator. And if you're a bank, your ability to price interest is completely contingent on your ability to understand the value of the underlying asset. This is why we typically don't do loans in gold or real estate or other volatile things, because it's really impossible to know who's going to be the winner or the loser. So it, I think it is incredibly important for uh, Cardano to have at least one stable coin on it. And that's really just a game of interoperability of being able to you know, have either issue a stablecoin on the system or to allow people to move stablecoins to the system and act upon those uh, stablecoins so that they can use them as a, uh, as a pricing mechanism or a commercial mechanism and so forth. But uh, ADA wasn't designed with that in scope. It's kind of the control currency of the system. Uh, and then we figure that there's going to be a diverse palette of assets and some of those assets will have specific monetary policies or designs that allow them to stabilize around certain price bands. That's very interesting. Very interesting. I think that stability is very important for adoption from SMEs and businesses throughout. I mean, Walmart or Amazon or Facebook or Google, they, they have their books they're Fortune 500 companies. They have to report their earnings after every quarter. They're not going to take risks doing something that's 
that volatile. Adoption will not happen in the business sector unless there's some kind of peg to some stable coin or some stability within a certain asset. But that being said, we have the next question, which is from Y Petrov. Says, Charles, after you're done with the Cardano project in 2020, what are your plans for the future? I know you've touched on it in previous AMAs, but um, has anything changed um, on your perspective? Well, I, I hope to be herding yaks and uh, alpacas and uh, you know doing math stuff and things like that. I mean, IOHK is a great company, a very diverse company, and we have other cryptocurrencies in the portfolio and unannounced projects, and that's going to continue about its own way. But at some point, I won't be needed, and uh, it'll kind of run itself. Uh, and then my hope would be to kind of take a step back and uh, enjoy my ranch and uh, basically uh, look into more agricultural and artistic endeavors. Uh, although I really would like to still do some things in mathematics in particular, in particular homotopy type theory I'm quite interested in. And I think the issue that we have with math is we're suffering the dual issue of over abstraction and uh, a foundation that was really not built with computers in mind. And there's uh, a lot of things I think you could do with um, Koch or Isabel in mathematics if you had the right models and the right foundations of math. And there's a lot of collaboration mathematicians could have where we would not end up having these pivotal papers like Sinichi's proof of the ABC conjecture that's 500 pages long and you can't really verify it. You know, it's, it's a tragic thing that you'd say, hey, there's these major results that could profoundly change your field. Oh, and by the way, only six people can understand it. And it's going to take about eight years to go through the proof. And then they're going to have a big debate over whether the proof is correct. And uh, there's going to be a difference of opinion there. It shouldn't happen in mathematics. It would be like saying I've discovered a new particle and I have all this experimental evidence, but you can't read my data because it's too voluminous. Uh, so wait eight years to process it and then we can figure out if we really did discover the Higgs boson or not. Physicists would go crazy if that was the case. But we as mathematicians seem to accept that as the status quo. Uh, so I would really love to invest a lot of money there. The other thing that bothers me is Springer has a monopoly over the damn pedagogy of mathematics. You know, you have the yellow jacket books and they uh, they go pay every mathematician and their uncle to write one of them. And um, they're 120 bucks each. Uh, and honestly, this is knowledge that thousands of years old, even modern mathematics is showing its age. It's like a two, three hundred years old from Euler on forward. So it'd be really cool to go and rewrite all the foundations of math as Creative Commons textbooks uh, and uh, release them. And it doesn't actually cost that much. I, I think I priced it out at maybe 20 or 30 million for pretty much everything through grad school for all major fields of math. Uh, and I could afford that. So it would be nice when I retire to, to go and, and do that. It's quite a bit of work and a lot of people I'd have to hire. Uh, but we'd be able to collaborate with a lot of people and we could end up creating a, a, a multilingual, huge set of math pedagogy, uh, both on the textbook side and on the course side. Uh, and then we also could do a lot of pioneering work with um, you know, rewriting the foundations of math. Uh, last thing would be nice to do would be to create a, a really easy to use computer algebra system. That's a space that either on the open source side, you look software like Sage and it's great, but it's not it's kind of kludgy and you know things like Mathematica or MATLAB and they're really either built for engineers or they're just too expensive and it would be so cool if we actually had a beautiful nice CAS and my idea would actually be to write the whole thing in PureScript and then actually attach a dependently typed language to PureScript or like refinement types to PureScript and then put that into a Chrome extension 
so then you can just have a one-click install CAS for the masses, easy to collaborate with people. And uh, we even have a product for that we're building called um, QAditas, where you can create a marketplace for deduction. And eventually you could create a bounty system where mathematicians could uh, get paid to write proofs and verify that their proofs are correct. And if you could wire that into an easy-to-use extension, you can end up creating a global marketplace for doing good mathematics with these new foundations. So it'd be a lot of fun to, to do that. And I think it would be much more meaningful than my last foray, which was an additive number theory where I couldn't prove anything or do anything and uh, kind of floundered a bit. So, you know, Goldbach and Collatz and these other conjectures are rather unassailable. They're, uh, they break the best of men and gals. That's what I'll do herd yaks and alpacas and do enough math until I go crazy and have a big beard. And then everybody will think I'm just a strange homeless man. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it's living the dream, I think. But, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of biased. I, I'm also in, into math. But uh, So the next question is from LARPO, who is basically asking, with all the flavors of Ouroboros coming out, kind of what's the end game? Uh, and I, I'd like to kind of add on to that question in the sense that, you know, the first version of Ouroboros uh, kind of left a lot of questions hanging. You know, it was the first version, there's a lot of stuff that, that needed to be taken forward. And now there's been a lot of papers and advancements uh, where you've had, you know, a, a part of Ouroboros that kind of solves this issue and then another extension that solves this issue. And how do you really decide, you know, which priorities to take, which part of Ouroboros you improve on next? And how will these, you know, different versions of Ouroboros play together? For example, like, you know, we'll have the Ouroboros, uh, whatever version, running on, on the main chain. And then you can have Ouroboros BFT running on side chains and then possibly some other version of Ouroboros with, you know, privacy protocols on different side chains. And how does that ecosystem really evolve around this al algorithm? Yeah, so I, there was really three research phases for Ouroboros. The first phase was the theory phase, which was saying... Do we even understand what the hell we're trying to do? So we said, well, what is a secure ledger? And, you know, does proof of work create that? And if it does, then, uh, you know, can proof of stake achieve the same level of security given some collection of assumptions, reasonable or not? And that was really the first generation of the research. And the capstone paper was the original Ouroboros paper in that. And there was a series of papers like GKL, for example, uh, that led to that. Uh, and then, boy, that was a lot of fun, and it was a great paper, but you're absolutely right in that it was it left a lot to be desired. And uh, then the next step was just kind of take the breath, see what the industry as a whole had done, and then gradually make things practical. Uh, some we can borrow, like, you know, Algorand had some great ideas about VRFs, and, you know, so there was some inspiration there. And, you know, Snow White and Sleepy had some great ideas about you know, how the network side of things ought to work, and there were some great ideas there. So then Prowse was kind of the output of that and where we, we looked at what others had done and we innovated where we could. And then uh, the last mile for something practical was that chain selection rule where you have with proof of work the longest chain rule. You know, this concept of saying all you know is the genesis block. Can you from that piece of knowledge distinguish between three or four chains from different people or 10 chains from different people and with a reasonable level of certainty actually pick the right one? Uh, with proof of work, you can always do that. It's a deterministic process. You just do a calculation, and whichever one's the heaviest, huzzah, that's the one to go with. And there you go. And that's a great property. And proof of stake, uh, we had a way of solving it. It's called a checkpoint. <laughs> Not exactly 
not exactly a desirable component. But with Genesis, we found a way around that, and I thought that was super cool. However, it's not a complete way because uh, it still assumes that you have never had a dishonest majority throughout the life cycle of the system. So you know, now the next step is to harden that and say, well, we can permit spikes of dishonest majority, or well, if the network goes down for some period of time, it still doesn't affect the system, and yada, yada, yada. So uh, the second phase of research is all about practicality, and it's all about basically turning it into a production system. Uh, Incumbent in that research line was also the stake pool research that we did and the incentives research we did out of Oxford. And boy, that was hard, and it took a hell of a long time, and we had to write a lot of specs. It's still not completely done, but it's converging, I'd say, at a good pace, and we'll be ready for Shelley. Uh, and at that point, it's a production system. And what I mean by that is you could launch it and it'd run forever just like Bitcoin and people would be pretty happy with it. But the third phase is all about getting to the millions and billions of users, and that's all about scalability. So that's that concept of can we make these systems scale as we gain more users as opposed to having the systems be replicated systems and they kind of have a theoretical maximum of usefulness. So that requires better protocols and you know we're starting to see the emergence of those things like parallel chains for example and uh, the side chains research agenda and at some point those two things will converge and Ouroboros Hydra will be released. Now along the way you're going to see all these other flavors of Ouroboros like Ouroboros BFT or uh, you know an Ouroboros that specializes in privacy preservation and you know uh, maybe an Ouroboros Kronos which tinkers with the clock a little bit in some really weird ways. Uh, and basically, these are just flavors for different operating environments, or these are options for deployment where you, the network architect has priorities, or uh, these are things that facilitate uh, certain features that you need to have to let things work well, like finality, for example. If you need to have finality quickly, it, you do need at some point to have an or, a BFT protocol at the end of the rainbow, uh, especially with side chains. If you do it with probabilistic finality, it takes quite a bit of time for a transaction to sell from one system to the next. So a lot of cases, what you can do is layer these protocols on top of each other. One of the reasons we did all the security proofs with GUC is that they're composable then. So you know when you layer these things on top of each other, they all just kind of work together and you're not going to violate any of your underlying assumptions and they're quite nice. So uh, for example, I can entirely see a world where we have Ouroboros Genesis running with Ouroboros BFT in parallel. And the BFT side is used for fast finality transactions, sidechain transactions, and checkpointing. Not for security, but checkpointing for rapid chain download, where basically you can uh, create a checkpoint for each epic, and you can then download and validate the epics uh, out of band, kind of like you would with a distributed hash table, for example. Your BFT protocol can create two ledgers. You know, you have uh, this small checkpoint ledger that's that's maybe a megabyte or something, you download as soon as you connect to the network, and then you can download all of your epics in any order you want, and as soon as you download a full epic, you can check it against that ledger, and then you can sweep the chain once, once you've gotten the whole chain to verify everything's correct. So this is an example of you know how you could use these things together, and it also could help quite a bit with the parallel chains construction, and you know those things will come. And as for the particular flavor that we choose, I mean, that's what Duncan does, and the rest of these guys do, and they're a hell of a lot smarter than I am, so they... They know how to do these things much better than I could guess. Uh, you know, and the other thing is some of the papers that we write in the Ouroboros line inevitably are papers for the academic world, where as engineers, we say, well, we're pretty satisfied with the solution. Things look really good. But 
as an academic, you kind of hand wave somewhere and, you know, the, the it, you kind of build up social credit with uh, some of these reviewers and they say, okay, we'll let you get away with this, but we expect to see a paper sometime next year that cleans this thing up and, you know, uh, you know, to go, chop, chop, get back to it. Uh, so some of the publications have been this way, you know, where we've just been you know, pretty pedantic. Like, for example, some people didn't like the four couple string stuff that we did. So Alex Russell actually uh, published another paper that had an alternative way of proving it. And uh, maybe some people think that's a bit more elegant. And there were some refinements in that particular paper. And other things are ad hardening against particular adversaries. In particular, quantum adversary is something that people think a lot about these days. And they say, oh, no, what happens when Bob gets a quantum computer that's going to, like, destroy my cryptocurrency? We're all screwed. So... You need to harden your system against a quantum adversary. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what does it even mean to have a quantum adversary? What can they do? What capabilities do they have? The canonical thing that people worry about is Shor's algorithm. And they say, oh, no, we can break DLP and you know, energy factorization and therefore RSA and elliptic curves are done. But those are not all the only things you have to worry about. There may be other things that a quantum adversary can do. So... You know, we can harden our system in a way uh, against certain things, like we can adopt XMSS, and then suddenly we can say with reasonable certainty that uh, quantum information theory's latest and greatest of algorithms aren't going to do too much to us. But that doesn't still necessarily mean that our system is immune to the perils of quantum computation. So you have to kind of write a paper and define what that adversary can do, and then reprove things given that adversary uh, that you still are provably secure in that model. So now, is that paper commercially useful, and do we expect to see a full implementation of all of the suggestions? Probably not, because you may actually lose primitives when you do that. For example, the TMS primitive in uh, uh, sidechains, uh, or all of these snark things that people like. They rely on assumptions that probably don't hold when you're dealing with quantum adversaries. So... Uh, so given those realities, uh, you know, it's, it's made, the trade-off profile may be too harsh uh, to assume hardening against that. But at the very least, you can do partial hardening where you can say, well, maybe we lose privacy uh, or, you know, maybe we lose the ability to distinguish funds in different systems. But at the very least, the history of the parent system can be hardened because we're using XMSS, for example, to secure the ledger. Are these types of things. And I think that's the importance of having the academic process so close to protocol design and so close to the engineering is that as you're building these systems, you always go back to the drawing board and say, well, how far do we want to go? You know, how much science do we really want to embrace? And, you know, how much stuff do we really want to have certainty with? And where can we live with uncertainty? And that's, um, that's quite hard at times. And that's why we have a good diverse team there. So the succinct answer about the, all the flavors of Ouroboros is that we do love owning a candy store. And, uh, you know, sometimes people like gummy bears and sometimes people like lollipops. And we'd like to sell candy to all the kids. Uh, so in our particular case, we have a particular bag that we're looking at. But it's good to write all these things and, uh, you know, let people shop for what they want. And we're just going to keep writing papers in that series accordingly. That's incredible. Incredible. I, the, the last points that you made, it solidifies that I think Cardano is the most academically rigorous crypto project in the crypto space as of today. And um, just the idea that you're even looking far out and trying to quantum proof your cryptocurrency just goes to show you 
Cardano's vision to be a long-term cryptocurrency and not just a project around here for three to five years. I mean, this is a serious cryptocurrency that's employing certain business tactics. So 10 years from now, it can exist. 15 years from now, it can exist. The, the rapid pace of technological development and adversaries in the crypto space allows, um, you know, when you have a cryptocurrency like Cardano, it makes sure that we are future proofing this cryptocurrency. We're not, we're not, we're not taking any chances. So any rocks or stones that are thrown at us in the future, we're going to be ready for it. So that's very encouraging. Charles, how are we doing on time? We're over an hour. Do you want to take a couple more questions? Sure. Let's keep them coming. Okay. Sounds good. Sebastian, how are you doing over in Japan, man? Yeah, it's uh, middle of the night here, but you know, it's, it's, uh, Okay, I guess that's, that's why you might notice it's kind of like a dark around me. I've got my my light. Uh, look, 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 look at the backdrop, man. It's just as dark for me. I think we're at like eleven thirty or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, next question is from Winnipos, and it says it's a developer question. It says, "How hard is it to learn Haskell, Plutus, or Marlowe for developers that are used to C plus plus, C sharp, VB, uh, Java?" Do they need to be engineers to develop? Are they going to need to wait for a compiler to translate from Java to Solidity, C++, to Haskell, Plutus, or Marlowe? And how can they teach their team to develop with these new languages? Well, the whole point of the project is to use the tools you know and love and not be forced to use tools that are exotic to you. Um, so the Yella is all about saying if you're a Java developer, be a Java developer and don't worry so much about Plutus or Haskell. Uh, the point of writing protocols in Haskell is that, especially for reference implementations, is that you have to know that you've actually built it correctly. So that's why we wrote it in a language that kind of forces us to think in a very rigorous way. Uh, but outside of that, if, if your goal is rapid prototyping or your goal is to write things in a way that looks like what you're used to, uh, it's my moral obligation as a system architect to give you the freedom to do that. So don't even think about learning Haskell. But if you're obsessed with correctness and you're obsessed with verifying that your specification is correct, uh, then, you know, if, the, if that's the case, then it probably is good to start playing with functional programming languages. Now, you know, which one is the easiest to learn? I don't know, maybe Lisp. Uh, but at the end of the day, concepts are the concepts. And uh, it takes probably a good two months to wrap your brain around functional programming to an extent where you actually comfortably read code and write code and, and use some of the basic concepts like you know recursion and maps and filters and if you're in Haskell monads and all these crazy things that we have and just thinking in types and all the crazy things that you can do with types. Uh, it probably takes you five to ten years to master the functional programming space. It's a skill like any other skill like surgery or law. And if you want to be a proficient Haskell programmer, you're still going to be discovering things three or four years into your programming career in that space. Uh, the advantage of this space is that it gives you tools that are super good at managing parallelism and concurrency and super good at managing state when you have to manage it and super good at knowing that your program meets certain properties. So, you know, if you can do these things, great. Uh, if you don't want to do these things, then write it in Java or JavaScript like you're used to doing it. And, uh, you know, Yellow is there for you. Uh, so, you know, if you're curious about a good pedagogy, we as a company are creating one. Uh, we're doing it in person at the moment, but through partners, we're going to MOOCify our Haskell class and give that away for free. 
Uh, and then we're going to work with partners to gradually build out that education stack. So we'll try to work with QVIC to create a property-based testing things to teach you how to use QuickCheck. We'll try to you know, build something about dependent types to teach people about how to prove things are correct. Uh, and then we'll try to get into, you know, kind of some of the higher um, concepts in the Haskell world. And we might even cover some things like category theory and so forth, but do so in a way that is accessible for mainstream developers. Uh, kind of the gold standard there is what um, Martin Ardirsky did with um, Scala on Coursera. There's like a five-part series there, and they kind of walk through basic Scala all the way up to data science and parallelism in Scala. And it's a pretty good pedagogy for people who are curious of learning. It was made for Java developers who want to get more money, so they're moving from Java to the Scala world because everybody's doing that. Uh, it'll be super cool to do a, a set of courses that way. Uh, but succinctly, I'd say that it's probably not a good idea if you're an everyday developer to just immediately move to the Haskell world, unless you have a compelling reason to do it. So if there is a collection of problems that are really hard to solve, unless you're using a tool like Haskell, or you're really obsessed with your program working correctly, then stick with just what you know, and uh, we'll have tools to accommodate that. Sebastian? Yeah, so, uh, so the next question is sorry I, I was i was i was parsing charles's answer and kind of thinking about my own opinion on on this topic this is something that i've been uh, giving a lot of thought to especially for stuff like Marlowe, where we, we can basically have tiers of accessibility for our ecosystem say hey if you don't have any programming language knowledge at all really you can come onto Marlowe, and then we can have you know kind of simpler systems like you know you will have yella where you can run the smart contract platform with a program language you're familiar with and then kind of like the more complicated one with Plutus so there's going to be like a, a uh, array of options based on how deep you want to get into it uh, but sorry anyway so the next question is by someone whose name I just cannot pronounce it's you know a bunch of letters and numbers I don't think there's a pronunciation to it uh, and there's they're basically saying uh, can the market cap of cryptocurrencies ever get so high and the liquidity so good uh, that the interoperability between uh, different layers is so fluid uh, that speculative trading can basically they, they say disappear, but I'm not sure what they really mean by that. No. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great response. This next um, this next question it's a series of questions. I guess I can do it in a more rapid format. It got a lot of upvotes as well on Reddit. Um, it's more um, asking you what you like. So I don't know if you want to just keep the answers brief and I can just rapid fire you the, the questions if that's okay. Let's do it. Sounds good. Okay. Where do you like to relax? At home. Okay. Travel tips or travel hacks? Do you have any? Uh, always wear the same format. So jeans, boots. Boots are great because they're both formal and they're casual. And uh, these button-down shirts, uh, best tip for them, if you take them in the shower... Uh, you know, obviously away from the faucet and you turn it on the hottest setting, you get steam, they de-wrinkle. So you can wear them multiple times without having to wash them. So yeah, you should try that. You can steam de-wrinkle your shirts. And actually it works really well at the Oppa hotels in Japan because they have these showers with a little hook and they're very compressed rooms. And there's lots of steam. And they're kind of like sleeping cubicles. So Oppa hotels, the best place to steam wander your, your dress shirts. And we're always wear your cowboy boots. 
Okay. But make sure you okay. take them off because they got big nails in them and when you go through these security things because they'll always trip the metal detectors. So even if they tell you to keep your shoes on, fight with the TSA guy and just take them off because uh, you'll get the pat down otherwise. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite NFL team? Denver Broncos. Okay. What's your favorite music genre or favorite band? Boston. Okay. Do you have a favorite video game from back in the day or currently? Oh, come on now. There was only one game. It was Arcanum. Okay. <laughs> um, in the countries that you're visiting, are you, using, are you seeing the use of green technology? I'm not sure which. Like solar and wind? Actually, it is pretty surprising that uh, as I've traveled over the last five years, I keep seeing more and more solar and wind. And uh, I keep seeing more and more ecologically friendly things, even in places like China. So, yeah, there is definitely a proliferation of green technology and awareness of environmentalism that's spreading, which is quite impressive. Okay. Um, are other countries interested in crypto because of the technology aspect or do they want a currency that is less manipulated? I think most of the interest is currently about the money. Okay. Uh, you know, and uh, it's going to take a few years for us to get beyond that. Okay. And last rapid fire question. What kind of vehicle do you drive? And they assume that you don't have a Tesla. So they said, why isn't it a Tesla? Ah, because Teslas are pieces of junk, man. They break down all the time and the quality control is terrible. The pillars crack. Uh, you're going to be in the shop all the time. No, I have a Cadillac. I have a Cadillac XTS, the old man Cadillac, a 2014 XTS. And let me tell you, that is a smooth ride, man. I love my MagnaLeg uh, suspension system. It's uh, MagnaRide suspension. It's got feral magnetic fluid in the shocks. Got a little camera that scans the road and readjusts the viscosity of the uh, of the shocks 4,000 times a minute. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's nice. It's nice. It's not too expensive to operate too. So that's that's my car, Cadillac XTS. Highly recommended. Good to know. Good to know. That was the last rapid fire question. So Sebastian, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, it's a question from Mickey Pen eighty eight. They're asking, do you think uh, Cardano or maybe blockchain in general will ever have a place in uh, quote unquote true voting systems, for example, elections? You know. Voting is such a cool topic. I, I was on a panel today here in Bangkok and talked about it for a little bit. But yeah, it, what really blew my mind is I was listening to the Joe Rogan experience and he had these two guests on who were, one was a mathematician, the other one's like a philosopher or poli-sci professor. I can't remember his field. But they just got so tired of feminist theory that they said, you know, we're just going to try to debunk this whole thing and show that peer review sucks in that field and these people aren't real academics. So how would you do that? Well, you, rate, you write fake papers as fake people. You submit them for peer review. And if it's a real field of science, they shouldn't accept those papers. They would recognize them as fakes and say, this is crazy and reject all of them. So they wrote 20 papers in a single year and eight of them ended up getting published, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. And uh, they, they started just getting crazier and crazier because they were pushing the envelope. And in one particular case, they took Mein Kampf which is Hitler's book, and they replaced white, uh, they replaced uh, Jews with white male, or whiteness, uh, you know, white privilege in, in Mein Kampf, and it, it, the damn thing nearly got published. It was pretty crazy, uh, you know, when you look at these these reviews. So you know, it's privately, a lot of professors uh, came up to them after they they 
announced publicly that they had done this this uh, this uh, spoof and said, we support you and we think this was very valuable work and uh, we're getting real tired of identity politics and you know where these universities are going and the toxic environment there that's censoring op- differences of opinion. So then the guy said, hey, can you support us and you know write an open letter or you know back us up? And they said, oh no, it's career suicide. Couldn't possibly do that. We'll face brutal retribution. So when you think about voting systems, it's not necessarily just about picking a particular political candidate. It's about the ability within any organization or institution to express your opinion safely. The CEO is an asshole and he's toxic to the environment. Identity politics is really bad. Right-wing extremism is really bad. Uh, Bob is embezzling. Uh, 85% of lost confidence in this particular pedagogy, whatever it might be. You know, in a traditional system, you're always fearful of reprisal and you're always fearful that someone's going to find out. So one of the magics of these blockchain systems is they allow you to orchestrate very secure, high fidelity elections that preserve privacy, but still guarantee that the right members actually could participate and only the right members could participate. The very same thing that allows you to properly account your currency and guarantee double spending hasn't happened and currency hasn't been created in thin air in a system like Zcash is the very same thing that would allow you to vote for Bob over Bill uh, or say that maybe we shouldn't have journals that allow you to publish Mein Kampf with the word substitution, uh, you know, these types of things. And nobody would know that Charles voted for that or Charles voted against that. It's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. Uh, so, uh, so yes, I, I think voting systems are tremendously important and their development is vital for a republic you know, or a democracy to function well or for us to make decisions well or express ourselves well. You know, sometimes the truth hurts and nobody wants to be that guy or that gal that's standing out there naked and alone in front of the mobs and takes the brunt of criticism because they had the courage to stand up. But if we know that we can express ourselves without fear of retribution and we can get our opinion out there, I think the world can be a much more honest place and we can make much better decisions overall. So uh, this is a very important area of research for us, not just because it allows us to run a treasury system or decide on what the next fork of Cardano is. It talks about the governance of all systems, whether it's a Boy Scout club or a small business or a multinational corporation or a government or an academic institution or a religious institution. Uh, For example, if you think of the Catholic Church, wouldn't it be nice if maybe it was a bit more democratic in the church of who gets to pick the pope than having a bunch of cardinals, you know, go uh, go into a chapel in Rome and white smoke comes out? You know, and uh, wouldn't it be nice if the voting was done in a way that was less political? Maybe you get a better outcome. Maybe you get a more fair institution that would be more receptive to the issues and the abuses that have happened, uh, you know, because people understand that there's a greater degree of accountability and transparency in these types of systems, and yet their, their interests are still protected. Uh, so I think it's a very fundamental thing. And if anything, the cryptocurrency space accomplishes, if the whole fintech side and the regtech side and uh, the property registration side and all these things fizzle out and they don't really take off and we all still use SQL for this shit. If we can, uh, if we can still get a good voting system out of this and use this uh, to help us make better decisions collectively for all institutions at all levels and preserve our privacy and our autonomy, 
then I think that's probably still makes blockchain the most valuable invention of the 21st century. That was a very good point. Very good point. Very good point. I can't wait till voting and I hope that it, it, it matriculates in the way that you're saying. And um, I think it's going to allow a lot more accountability and differences of opinion. P too many people's voices are not heard because they're either scared to come out or, you know, the media portrays it. You have to have one certain opinion with this media channel, one certain opinion with this media channel and so right. on. So it's really hard. And that career suicide thing and nowadays is, uh, is, is a serious flaw with, with our democracy. Right. Yeah, but, it's so um, easy to happen. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. One word and you're done. Right. You're done. Yeah. You always wonder, so. is this going to be my last day on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. Let's make it good. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's make it a good question. Okay. This question, I, I, I got it a lot. Um, got it on Twitter and Reddit. So everyone's wondering with the crashing market, is IOHK Emergo and the Cardano Foundation, are they solvent? Do they have enough money to continue operations? Everyone wants a dollar amount when when the operation will stop, but I know that the all all three entities are well funded, but you know, so many crypto projects are fizzling out and they're selling all their ETH or they're selling their BTC and they're gonna be done in the matter of a year. Uh, people want to know whether or not this is going to be the same for Cardano. Right. Well, you know, it's kind of funny that uh, on one hand, people say, how dare you work on other projects, IOHK? We want you only to work on Cardano. But then on the other hand, by working on other affairs and projects, we make revenue as a company, which allows us to keep our people gainfully employed and continue doing research and keep the lights on. So it's kind of just a bizarre thing, this space. They don't know what they want. Um, IOHK is fine. We're wildly profitable. The company is doing quite well and we're growing and we have a pretty diverse product pipeline and uh, those products will sustain us uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we're fully funded till 2020 specifically for the Cardano project and we'll honor all of our obligations there with or without appreciation of ADA. We haven't sold a single ADA. I'll show you all of the FUD in our space over and over again. Every day I see people say that we're dumping our ADA and that's why the price is going down. We published our address. It's verifiably false. You know, this, uh, this, this lie that goes around. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, and I, and I understand why people worry about these markets falling. Um, the reality is most of these projects were started by people with no experience in Wall Street or fund management. And they got a bunch of an asset and they said, wow, the asset keeps going up. Let's just hold on to it because I'll just keep getting richer and richer and richer. And they didn't realize the, what goes up can also go down. And suddenly they went from being massively in the green to actually losing half or more of their project capital. Uh, the most ironic historical offender of that was the Ethereum project itself. After I left, they failed to hedge the Bitcoin that they raised and they lost $9 million to volatility in the market, half of their funding. So, uh, so these things can happen. They certainly cause a lot of pain and heartache when they do. Uh, but for our purposes, I think we're doing reasonably well and comfortably well and uh our best days are definitely ahead of us yeah it's the same thing at emergo so we're still hiring more people we're still still growing our teams uh we have enough money that this the market is not really uh affecting our company itself and so if we find somebody who's you know got the right skills 
and the right fit, you know, we'll, we'll get them on board. So that's great to hear Sebastian and Charles. So I think this concludes episode four. Thank you again, Charles, for giving us the opportunity and coming on the Cardano effect podcast. You're welcome anytime. I know you have a busy rest of the week ahead of you. So we are going to wrap this up. Thanks to everyone on Reddit for submitting questions. If we didn't get to your questions, we'll table them and get to them in a different episode. Um, We have our regular schedule programming. Rick will be back next time. So once again, thanks everyone for viewing this. I am going to be posting all the links in the description below. And if Charles or Sebastian have any final or closing words, we can pretty much wrap this up. Well, thanks everybody for putting this on. I really do appreciate it. And this is a lot of fun. And I'm a big fan of the show. I think you guys have grown a lot in just a few episodes. And I uh, always look forward to the next episode. It's one of the few shows I watch regularly. So thanks for all the hard work, guys. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I'm going to stop the broadcast now. Bye, everyone. Cheers.